Welcome to Mint, the corner of where crypto meets the creator economy. My name is Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. Before we kick off this episode, I wanted to recognize one of the NFT sponsors that's helping make Mint a reality. They are CyberConnect, a decentralized social graph protocol allowing users to own and control their social connections while providing a universal data layer backed by powerful social features to empower developers. Already with 150,000 users and 3 million connections, CyberConnect is the largest decentralized social graph supporting Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, Near, and Solana with more coming soon. To learn more, visit cyberconnect.me and start connecting with everyone in Web3. This episode welcomes the Web3 native EDM DJ Daniel Allen and Matt Alston, the co-founder of Bonfire. The two return to the podcast for another episode, but this time around Daniel's new project titled Glasshouse, an experiment that started as a simple crowdfunding campaign, which quickly turned into a week-long writing camp in the hills of Malibu, California. Daniel Allen and Henry Chatfield hosted numerous artists across a week-long adventure to produce what ended up being Daniel's newest project in Web3. This episode mainly focuses around the pros and cons of curated music NFT marketplaces and why Daniel decided to go independent with hosting his new NFT launch on his own site thanks to Bonfire. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Daniel and Matt, welcome back. Mint. What's going on, guys? Thanks for being on. Let's go. What's Happy what's to up? be here, man. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Big moment. We got some really cool things coming out, both on Bonfire side, both on Daniel's side. You guys have been on the podcast already, but for those who haven't seen those episodes, okay, I always like to start with a quick introduction, okay? So, Daniel, why don't you go ahead and start, and then we can go to Matt. Who are you, man? What does the world need to know about you? But more specifically, how'd you get your start into Web3? For sure. I'm Daniel. I'm a electronic music producer from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I've been working on a lot of projects since I moved to LA. I started doing electronic stuff. Now I'm kind of in the rap lane and whatnot, but I, uh, I got into Web3 uh, about a little over a year ago. I minted my first music NFT like 439 days ago. And I know that because of the, the blog that I just wrote. Um, yeah, and it's fundamentally changed my life. It's let me live a life where I'm able to um, have relationships with people that really value my music and it's let me make art that is uh, true and honest to me. So it's a little, I think that, I think that works. Yeah. No, that, that sums it up really well. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I'm uh, Matt. I'm one of the two co-founders of Bonfire. Bonfire is building white label, no code tooling to help creators engage in, and really build and manage a web three community. And so, uh, building like, you know, white label and custom branded experiences for things like token gated content, merch, and then NFT drops. So before we even go into the announcement, I want to understand what's the current state of music NFTs in this market? Like, what are we seeing exactly? The reality here is this is a lot of artists' first bear cycle, uh, myself included. But I think what I find really interesting is that it's opened a lot of design space for people to try to figure things out when their backs are up against the wall in reality. I think that it being in a bull market, you get used to a life that is you know, you're like, oh, like I'm selling music NFTs. This is working for me. This is working. But I think that actually one of the benefits of being in a bear market, like you guys know, is a lot of the best products and services have been built in one. Historically, if you look Coinbase, OpenSea, there are, there are a host of others. But yeah. what's been really interesting to see on my end is why, while it has slowed down a little bit, and obviously I think we were all kind of due for a correction if we're being a little bit, if we're, if we're being honest about it. But 
Well, it has slowed down. I have seen a lot of people embrace new ways of putting stuff out. Like I've seen a lot of people start to do things on Zora a little bit more. I've seen Freeman center the space a little bit. So to me, I think maybe to a fault, I'm an optimist, but it has been nice to see people start to experiment and do new things regardless of, of where things are at in the market. Matt, what about you? From a collector's point of view, what are you kind of seeing in the market? Definitely echo a lot of what Daniel said. I think the format for music NFTs that worked two months ago, I think, you know, is not necessarily the same one that's going to sustain through the bear market or, or maybe, you know, be the, the dominant model on the other side. And so I think that it does change the constraints um, kind of within which we're all, you know, building and playing and minting and collecting. And I think it creates, um, as Daniel mentioned, just like a different design space and one that personally I'm really excited for things like free mints, the kind of proliferation maybe of like cheaper mints, but into the hands of collectors who are able to earn or who are able to sort of, you know, signify their fandom in, in ways that are not just, you know, spend 0.1 ETH or spend a lot of ETH on chain. And so I think it'll be an interesting kind of like playground these uh, next few months, however long the bear market extends where, you know, as builders, as creators, as collectors, we'll all kind of experiment our way there and figure out what model works in, in a bear. Yeah, I think that's really wisely said. I've seen a lot of people experiment with uh, free editions and really cheap editions as a way to just like get their music out there and use NFTs as a tool for distribution rather than maybe monetization. Are you seeing the same thing? What are your guys' thoughts around that? We were on a free NFT summer Twitter spaces yesterday <laughs> with uh, Showtime. But yeah, no, I mean, I do think that um, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing a, okay. a bias towards, you know, instead of 0.1, maybe it's 0.05, 0.025, maybe it's free. And those also are like, you know, unlocking larger quantities, different distribution models. And so things that maybe are based on, you know, past fandom, past engagement, things that are maybe like more interesting distribution models than purely, you know, first come, first serve or, or like, and so I think we are seeing that trend, at least from my point of view. You know, a lot of people in, in the bear market tend to leave. Those who kind of were in the delusional era of the bull market where everything was up only and it's a good times only. We're all going to make it kind of times is now it's like it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird energy. A lot of people lost money. A lot of companies are going insolvent. And this tends to happen every single bear market. But creators still need to create. NFTs still need to be minted. Communities still need to be built. How do you actually build a community in a bear market when morale is so low? What are you guys seeing as the right strategies? And maybe, Daniel, it'd be interesting to hear from your point of view because you have so many collectors and fans now in crypto. I've always just followed the trend of what's worked for me from the very start, which is just you have to keep showing up regardless of where the market is at. I mean, regardless of what happens with my life, I'm always going to be making music. Like I, if I'm having like a bad day, if I'm having a good day, it's just kind of like the go-to thing for me to do uh, in either scenario. And I think it's kind of the same thing with this. I think regardless of where things are at, the most important thing is is, is just keep showing up because in, in Web3 and crypto, you get paid by the time that you put in. And you, you're, even if you don't have money to be able to put into something, if you just keep being in all the right places, then you're rewarded for it. And so that's something that worked for me early on and something I'm gonna, that I'm going to continue to do. And it's the same thing with my community, right? Like, I think that there was a window when, when we did our first podcast, Adam, where Discord was the end-all be-all and it was absolutely everything. Mm. And, and if you're not, and... If, if you're not on Discord or checking checking your Discord all day, then you're not doing it right, okay? But, but ever right. since then, this is a conversation that you and I have had off air, right? Like, what is the best way to be able to create some sort of marketing funnel to be able to have these relationships? Because the reality is Discord burnout is real. I'm sure you guys are all on like hundreds and hundreds of servers and, and have to be disciplined about which ones you cut in and don't. And I, I think really 
even if you're trying to adapt like I am, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out, am I using Lalo for my, for my broadcast outreach and finding a way to use Guild through Telegram or whatever it is. The most important thing is that you just keep showing up and adapting because if you look at a lot of your favorite artists at the spectrum of, on, on the Web2 side even, I think that there's a degree of loyalty in your fan base um, that regardless of what kind of music you put out, they're always going to show up and always going to be there. And I think in Web3, it's the same thing, regardless of where the market is at, regardless of what kind of drop you're doing, regardless of how clunky the communication is or isn't, mm. um, I think the loyal fans will continue showing up. So that's kind of, that's been my approach. Matt, what about you as someone who builds tools for creators to empower them to kind of build these on-chain communities? Is there a certain demand for specific tools now, now that a bear market has kind of kicked in? Have you seen any interesting trends on in how people are trying to keep communities engaged? The, the beautiful thing about the creator economy and where it meets Web3 is that like creator fan engagement, content, content consumption, like all those things are completely uncorrelated with asset prices. And like, you know, that really is a part of the market that should be resilient to this because if you're in a creator's community because you love the content, you love what they put out um, and, and as art in the world. And like, you feel like a part of this community of people who like feel the same, then like, what about that has lost value? And so I think that like, there is the case that, you know, in a bear market, all assets are, you know, are gonna decline in price. But I think that really, if you're there for kind of the other reasons and the reasons really that I think are uh, what have driven the creator economy kind of to where it is today, then those things really should be more resilient to uh, a bear market. And so I think the tooling that's going to be needed and in, in that, you know, we're working on at Bonfire, but a lot of, you know, great teams are working on is really how do you realize this promise of like being able to use Web3 to identify and engage directly with your like, you know, true fans? How do you like merge those, you know, Web2 and Web3 communities? How do you help onboard those people who are like passionate about the content, the art and help, you know, get them onboarded and familiar with web three and like see the value in it um apart from you know maybe price goes up and so i think it does sort of change maybe the the type of participant that'll be in the space the types of tools that are needed but i think it it maybe is actually like a net positive thing for the space over over time because it'll help you know everything mature and get to a point where i think we'll really start to see those sustainable use cases emerge yeah you know a lot of why we're doing this episode today is because Daniel, you're still on the verge of like still trying to build your community, grow your community, introduce new music, new drops into the space. And with that, you have Glass House coming out, uh, which I was lucky to play a really, really small role in that from being in Malibu to even contributing to the crowdfund and seeing this thing kind of evolve over time. I don't want to introduce it for you. What is Glass House? Give us, give us the, the spiel. For sure. This is actually pretty surreal to talk about. It's my first time like publicly talking about the project that's been behind kind of closed doors for a while. So, you know, a while ago I did a, I did a podcast with you where I talked about where we brought Henry Chatfield on, who's obviously the community manager for Overstem and a lot of the other projects that I've been working on. And, um, at the time we had just done the crowdfund for, I guess we had called Daniel Allen and friends, I believe was the name of it. You know, the whole premise of that was to be able to do something that I've been dreaming about doing for a while. I wanted to make sure that I was focused on the right things, which was at the core of everything, making really good music. So, you know, not, not to go back to it too much, but I, we did a crowdfund and I made this project with all my best friends in a glass house in Malibu. I want to talk about the house really quick because yeah, for sure. part of creating music is like being in the right energy, being in the right environment and kind of creating the right mood uh, and vibe throughout. Right. 
And I managed to come, I guess, in the last final days. And it actually was like a glass house. Like the views were immaculate. It was really inspiring, really, really relaxing, really calming. What a great place to actually sort of like construct and formulate this next project. But why, why a glass house? Like why Malibu? Why did you want to get an Airbnb in that specific location? Why was it the right environment to kind of produce this next project? For me, it was just like the first instinct. Like, I feel like that's a thing that a lot of musicians have in their career. You know, when they first moved to LA, like, oh, one day I'm going to do the Malibu thing where I just, you know, I get a house and I make music with all my friends. But I didn't even remember this. But one of my friends, Eldar, who's a writer on, on one or two of the records, we used to be roommates in Hollywood. Like, it was this crazy situation, like... I was making, I remember I was making like $800 a month <laughs> off of mix and master work and like a lot of, a lot of other things that weren't necessarily like making me happy. And we were splitting a bedroom in this no AC, you know, just the LA story of being an artist. And apparently Eldar told me that I, that I told him at that point in time, like one day I'm going to get a, I'm going to get an Airbnb in Malibu and, and make a project with all my best friends. I, I totally forgot saying that, but he told me when we were there, he's like, dude, I swear this is, this is something you said. So I guess it was like a very subconscious thing, but yeah, to your point, Adam, I think I think it'll present itself when people start to hear the music, but I want every song on that project uh, to feel like the view in that house. And it's really cool that you saw that and, and, you know, as like a collector and were able to see like the exact thing that I was trying to create through the music. But yeah, like the Malibu thing was a subconscious thing, but I, I guess I'd been thinking about it for a while without even knowing it. How many people actually ended up coming to the Glass House? Oh, dude, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, there were there were 92 backers, I believe, of the crowdfund. Because I remember we, me, mine, Henry, goal, our goal was to to top over Stim somehow. I think in between artists, so so through the duration of the whole camp, I want to say there were like 50, somewhere like 15 to 17 artists, like in that range, like okay. artists, songwriters, kind of all over the place, producers, and. Then at the very end, we did like a little get together. I think like, you know, 20 people came or something because not everyone lives in LA. But yeah, give or take, that's what it was. But it was also really hard, man, to like narrow it down because I, I think when you came on that last day, I didn't even have like any demos. I, I had like a bunch of like ideas that were thrown around, but I was like, man, like, I don't even know. I don't even know what to play because when you have, this is also my first time putting together a writing camp outside of the web three side. And you know, I, there's so many people in one room. Like there, I remember there were 64 Ableton project files that came out of that. So <laughs> that next week after I ended up extending and getting like an Airbnb somewhere else and like narrowing down which ones, which songs were the songs and what the storyline was and stuff like that. 64 project files that came out of the glass house across many different artists. I remember because I did come, I think one of the last few days and I asked, you, was like, Daniel, did you guys create a bunch of songs here or is it just ideas? You're like, nah, man, are you crazy? These are just ideas. There's no way we could have completed songs in, in such a short period of time, especially at this quantity with this, with this amount, amount of minds in the, in the room. How did you actually filter through everything and come to terms with what you, <laughs> what you want to bring to life? What does that creative process look like? Bro, it was so difficult because I wanted... Overstimulated was the best EP I ever put out. It was the first time that I was like, okay, my music really holds up to people that I look up to. And then I was like, I have to beat that. And and what I was referring to, why like they were just a bunch of ideas and not songs is my like creative process is very weird as a producer, right? Like I, it's not really the most functional thing to have six people in a room and I'm, you know, fucking with a synth for six hours. You know what I mean? Like that's not the most inspiring thing for other people to be yeah. in a room with, right? So, so for me, I had the reason that I got that place afterwards was to do all those, you know, all those really nitpicky things to see like, how does, how can I make this sonically really unique and, and whatnot? And how can I get it to tell a story? And so I was 
because I obviously know like the position that I'm in as like one of the I guess like first artists in in music and and Web three and dropping music NFTs and because of that kind of responsibility that I hold, I really wanted to make sure that I was being super particular and putting out like the best music that I could possibly put out. Um, and so it was a really tedious process. I, if I go through my notes app right now, I probably have like easily 20 different versions of what I thought the project could have been. Like I, I have six <laughs> song versions. I have three song versions. I have 12 song versions. Um, and then I ended up narrowing it down to the four songs that are on it now, but it was, um, you'll, we'll see the, we'll see the other songs eventually. Um, but to me, that just felt like the most cohesive, best, nitpicky, high quality uh, songs were the four that I ended up being. Yeah. And this is kind of like where Bonfire comes in as well to kind of bring this entire project to life digitally for the most part. Um, Matt, what was Bonfire's involvement in this entire project uh, and how did this collaboration come about? Yeah, so um, so we've been working with Daniel since, um, I guess, December, really, 2021, and, and kind of first paired on debuting just the overstimulated DAO homepage um, at DanielAllen.xyz. And, um, you know, for Bonfire, like a big part of our platform and what we're building is a, a page builder and kind of a, a no-code and Web3 native page builder. And so the ability to, you know, have your community connect wallet and then engage kind of, you know, through permission to access based on the tokens that you hold, or even to like mint directly from um, that, that site. And so after the overstimulated kind of DAO homepage launch, um, Daniel approached us to say kind of like, you know, I've got this idea for like how I want to put out my next project. Um, like, what do you all think? And I think immediately upon hearing this sort of, you know, what his vision was for the project, um, we were, we were soaked. And I think like, it was kind of about the, the, you know, philosophy about why, um, you know, why this project and why in this way, which I think Daniel can definitely share more about, um, but also about, for us, it challenged us to say like, okay, you know, Bonfire is, we really think of ourselves as more of like a utility, like application layer uh, company. And, you know, we're not a protocol, but in Web3, there's this promise of interoperability. There's this promise of composability and there's all these creator-owned contracts out there. And so for us, it was like, what does it actually mean to let a creator, you know, import their creator on contract and, and then use Bonfire Studio to build the front end for that um, kind of custom experience. And so that was really like for us, we saw it as like a challenge one, but also like this could be such a cool just case study of kind of like what it actually means to start to build, um, you know, in a way that is is really a little bit more composable and interoperable within kind of Web3 creator economy meets, or sorry, creator economy meets Web3. And so we got really excited about the project. Then we started, you know, getting into all the details. It was definitely, uh, you know, it was, it was a challenge. And I think there was a lot of, uh, you know, things that we uh, ran into mm. along the way, but super excited about how it all, how it all came out. So what's really cool is that you guys really understand the funnel because like Daniel said, Discord gets really overwhelming and you need other forms of communication to stay in touch with your creators. The first thing that stood out to me was the SMS integration of being able to kind of build like that phone number list uh, to instantly reach out to the people who support you, love and adore you in your creator economy, which I thought that was really, really cool. And uh, it's such like a, a simple feature, but so powerful that many people actually aren't taking advantage. People typically use email, Telegram group chats, Discord, whatever. But there's so many other forms of communication that I think are so much more powerful. SMS is one of them. So I'm excited to see how you use that and not abuse that uh, kind of like <laughs> in, in the future. I guess, Matt, my next question to you is like when you're designing this site for Daniel, so many, and, and I guess this may apply to more creators in general, like so many creators are picky with what 
their things look like, what they feel like, right? How it kind of interacts with the audience on, on the surface. And there's so many touch points that when you try to build like a custom page for a community, you have to take all this into consideration. When you were designing Daniels, what were some, some of the most like important elements that were required for Glasshouse in building this website? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, the hard requirements were needed to support the custom contract. And really right. a lot of the complexity came from what we wanted the contract to do and to be. And I think also, you know, a lot of the design was really the creative that lives at the contract level, which, you know, Sophie Loftus um, was, you know, kind of the champion there on, on creating the dynamic layers. But a lot of it was sort of at the layer beneath us. And so it was just first establishing, like, what do we want the contract to do? And then, like, what does the UI need to have or, or need to um, be able to support? Um, but then when it comes to the actual, like, front-end experience, um, I mean, really, we we started with, like, just trying to get a feel for, like, what we wanted the vibe to be. Like, what is, you know, some of the, what are assets that we can use kind of as, like, examples of, you know, what this project's going to look like. and. And then, you know, we went with our designer, we came up with some concepts, we reviewed them, we iterated, and we just sort of like, um, you know, had a very, I would say, like collaborative approach to getting to what that, that final site looks like. And one requirement for us on the bonfire side was that everything that we, we do for Daniel needs to be reproducible in a completely self-service way within the bonfire product. And so we didn't want to do anything that was going to be completely custom that like, you know, couldn't support other artists, um, you know, after the Daniel Allen launch. And so that was kind of one constraint we were playing with, but, um, but really I would say like, it was, it was a lot of, you know, iteration and feedback and yeah, I'm really stoked with how it all kind of turned out. Can you talk more through about the evolution of bonfire? Because I think it's really interesting how you guys got started and where you guys are today. Uh, starting being in the rally ecosystem and today expansive and, and this really all encompassing platform. Can you walk me through that history? Yes. So we started in the rally ecosystem, as you mentioned, rally is a social token platform, um, helps, uh, creators, uh, mainly issue their own creator coin and they exist on a Ethereum sidechain. Um, and the vision was always to be chain agnostic, but we really felt like within the social token context, you really did need to eliminate gas fees before any use cases made much sense. And so um, we really loved the, the team building out rally. They had eliminated these gas fees. So we saw an opportunity to go there and start like building tooling to enable, you know, experiments, enable various forms of social token utility. Um, and then very quickly, so this was, you know, April, 2021, NFTs were on the rise, but hadn't quite like, you know, commanded, uh, you know, the public's attention in the way that they ended up doing later that year. Um, but I think pretty quickly after starting building, we realized that NFTs were going to be just the easier starting point and the more straightforward kind of um, tool for, for creators when it comes to community building. It's just a little simpler. It's a little bit less uh, complex and there's a little bit less in terms of like the and the things you need to think through and the tokenomics and all that. And so we pretty quickly realized that the platform needed to kind of treat both fungible and non-fungible tokens as dual class citizens. We also in January and kind of with the, um, you know, overstimulated DAO homepage launch really shipped the first web three Ethereum connect wallet kind of integration. And so that was sort of us dipping our toes in the water of being like agnostic across kind of two ecosystems. And then since then we've kind of, you know, continued leaning in and, and now support token gating kind of across Ethereum, Polygon, Gnosis, Chain, 
um, and then still the rally ecosystem. And then continuing to build out new features, I would say definitely they veer more on the NFT side today than they do on the social token side. Still bullish fungible tokens, but I just think that we started to see how they play into communities and Hot topic, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. It's, uh, I've, I've got some thoughts there, but anyways, yeah, I think that um, that's really where we began. And the focus has always been around like building utility, long-term kind of engagement amongst creator communities. But we, you know, the market's proven us wrong a couple of times. And then I think, you know, we're, we're still iterating our way there and it's been, it's been a blast. What's up guys, Adam Levy here. Sorry for the quick pause, but I wanted to recognize a couple of our NFT sponsors who are helping make this episode a reality. They are Coinvise and Mint Songs. First up, on Coinvise, you can create a personal or community-owned social token on Ethereum. Coinvise also helps you create incentives through token rewards and bounties, NFT business models, and bot integrations for Discord. Discover more by visiting coinvise.co today. Next up, we've got Mint Songs, a community curated marketplace for one of one music NFTs minted on Ethereum. Mint Songs connects music lovers and collectors with artists that want to build unique one to one relationships with their fans through music. To join as an artist, you will need to be invited by an existing artist or an existing collector within the Mint Songs community. Check out the artists pioneering the future of Web3 music today by visiting mintsongs.com. All right, back to the episode. One of the most exciting ways to keep engagement alive, and I think you guys have tackled it specifically you, Daniel, is the reveal process, the grandiose reveal and understanding and seeing what you actually get. I'm a sucker for reveals. I got a lot of the chaos packs too, and I haven't opened them up yet because I'm on like the verge of, should I open them? Should I not? But you're doing a reveal. Okay. And I'm trying to understand how does that actually integrate with bonfire? Like, is the reveal going to happen natively on the website? What will the reveal process look like? Can you guys walk me more through that? So the reveal itself is, is definitely a smart contract, uh, you know, feature. And so when you meant originally, you'll get the same pre pre reveal image. It'll actually be, um, an audio visual, uh, asset, just like the, the final token. And so you'll get kind of the preview audio to the EP, and then you'll get, you know, the same image that everybody else has. Um, the actual reveal will basically be, you know, updating the, the pointer on the smart contract to point to the individual assets where each person will then kind of discover like what token did they get based on all of the rarities and traits. Um, and then on the bonfire side of things, like what we will have is a, is a collector showcase, which will basically highlight then all of those assets as well as like, you know, the owners of each. And so it'll be kind of a gallery view of all the, the variations um, that the contract cool. produced and then who's holding those tokens. Got it. Your rise, especially at NFT NYC, you performed at so many different places uh, and you performed at Marquee, right? You performed at Cooper and Brett's thing and a bunch of other spots. Uh, I couldn't chase you all around the city. I came to a couple things, <laughs> but uh, I'm curious how your success in Web3 has sort of changed the tone of the conversation with peers and the music industry in general. Like what, what does that look like for you today? Yeah, man. I mean, I th I've, I've always held this thought that I think for Web3 to be, for Web3 music specifically to have like a mainstream moment, an artist has to break. Um, I've said that publicly and I believe in that. And in an ideal world, um, I'm trying really hard to make that me, um, you know, speaking candidly, right? I think that um, because of Web3, I've, I've been put in like a unique position to meet artists that I wouldn't necessarily have been able to meet otherwise. Um, 
And I, I think that a lot of producers and a lot of artists that live in L.A. just need some sort of a chance or some sort of an opportunity to show what they can do. Um, for me, like, it really served as a foot in the door. Like, uh, I started working on bigger projects. I started working with artists that I really, really look up to. And I, and I had before, but it, what I'm getting at is it, it kind of, I guess, fast-tracked that situation for me. Um, but at the same time, like, it, it has been, like, a healthy amount of pressure, too, because I've I've... Like I said, I kind of have this responsibility on on both sides, on the music side and on the live show side to be able to put on a dope show that isn't like a Web3 crypto event. You know, like I, I want I want the shows to really feel like, wow, like this is like a dope concert that someone would want to go to. And so I think for I think for me, my way around navigating it has just been like treat treat everyone as a fan, you know. Um, and try to like put on the best experience always. So, but yeah, I, I think that it's, it's definitely opened up a lot of doors, but I've, I've tried to approach it as responsibly as I could. Yeah. So Daniel, walk me more through the ethos of kind of bringing glass house to life. What was your main goal behind doing that? I, I first had the idea to do the glass house drop, um, at ETH Denver this year. What month was that? Do you remember? Was it maybe March, March, April, like something Febu some? February ish, Feb yeah. Feb February, March, yeah. Yeah, something like yeah. that. And what I really what I had noticed is, frankly, a, a lot of my friends were having a hard time getting on some of the platforms, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like, I, I, I'll be the first to say that my career would not exist uh, as it currently is without sound or catalog. And I think that in an ideal world, what this looks like is all of these these platforms can like kind of work in tandem with being able to do things on your own. But I kind of noticed this trend where, you know. There, in the early days of the music industry, there was this kind of divergence between discovery platforms and the actual marketplaces, right? Like people would go to Hype Machine to be able to discover new music and, and you know, similar blogs and aggregators. And then they would go to iTunes to be able to, to, to buy that music. Or they would go to LimeWire, like whatever they were doing, right? And then eventually that kind of trended towards the situation of Spotify, where Spotify is kind of both of them, right? It's They have the, the New Music Fridays and the curations of the world where people can discover, but then they're also consuming it right on the platform, right? And I think in a lot of ways, um, there are some similar patterns with the early days of streaming and the current state of music NFTs, right? So if you look at, at you know, sound, for example, uh, sound hosts these Twitter spaces uh, and everyone who knows what's good about music NFTs pulls up to the spaces, right? It's, it's a great opportunity for artists to be able to really organically develop their first relationships with their first batch of collectors, right? And for me, the question, uh, for the entirety of my career in Web3 has been like, okay, like how can I experiment given those things? Like how can I, I've tried this thing, I wanna be able to try something else. And so one thing I wanna make clear uh, in this conversation is that you still, I think that it's still never an, an artist's best benefit to be able to release with these platforms because mm -hmm. the reality is, is they are the primary discovery tools in Web3 and they're, they're, they're very valuable just thing to use as an artist. My question has always been, okay, what do you do after that? Because the reality is, is uh, platforms who can, that that are that are very busy have to. I, I want to be careful of my of my wording here because there's not. I'm not trying to talk down on any platform, but you have to spend a lot of time to be able to you know plan out what your next drop is. For me, like full autonomy and full independence means if you have music done, you should be able to drop it the very next day and do a drop that is something that is, is super curated to you and is and is something that that is. Uh, it really has like less boundaries, right? But but at the same time, right? The reason that that has been such a difficult thing historically in like the music NFT landscape is you need to hire a dev to do that, right? And full stack development costs anywhere from, you know, 10 grand to 100 grand. That's just not something that independent artists 
have. And even if it is something that they have, that is a really big risk to take on. So for me, like what I wanted the entire storyline to be with this drop was, you know, you can get on, you can use catalog, you can use sound, but what happens to the artists who maybe aren't able to, or what happens to the artists who want to be able to take some of those relationships and be able to cultivate them a little bit further without having to be, I guess, in the queue of, of, of some of the platforms. Right. And so for me, that's kind of where this whole thing came together of like, oh, like really, if you do have an audience to yourself, which you have to use these platforms to be able to, to create, then I guess my, my fundamental thesis is, that, is if you have those relationships and you're able to develop enough marketing funnel uh, on your own, then you should be able to do the drop on your own. And I think that in some ways, right, like there are worlds where you can use like a, a sound contract and import that. But for me, the storyline I wanted to be was to my friends were like, oh, like I can't get on catalog because obviously they have thousands of artists in the queue. Like I wanted to be like, oh, you don't have to. And that doesn't mean make having doing a thousand editions. It could mean doing five or doing 10. Um, so for us, that's kind of where this whole thing came together. And again, like I, for people who couldn't use a dev, we decided to use ramp, right? Um, because, but we're using ramp because it is able to, it's able to process like some of the dynamic rarity traits that we wanted to implement yeah. in the drop. I wanted to feel like this DIY thing, like you can do it on yourself. You could do it yourself kind of like the early SoundCloud days in music. But at the same time, I still think that all of us kind of have to work in tandem. So I just want to make that really clear. Yeah. You know, like you bring up the the pros and cons of curation marketplaces. Like that's a very, like it's a very known and normal thing, right? The power of having a highly curated marketplace is that you you create an environment that attracts a certain type of collector and they bring audiences to people that otherwise maybe wouldn't have any audience, right? And I think there's there's a time where, there's a time and place where you can kind of like fly out of the nest, kind of thing right and, and experiment beyond the platforms and and make room for other artists that need a platform that need to be in the nest and use these curation primitives to kind of build an audience find their find their collectors find their first collector second collector whatever and grow accordingly and i think your your whole entire approach of like it's okay to do things yourself there's still value in that is super powerful because it's going to inspire a lot of other artists to kind of think that way uh you're also seeing if you can't get onto like curated platforms you're seeing artists kind of like lean on non-curated platforms like Zora, right? People have been dropping stuff on Zora, whether it be a free mint, whether it be a paid mint, whatever it may be. And there are collectors that are like devoted to Zora because they love that culture. They love the, the Zoratopia culture, right? And they'll find stuff over there. I, I remember in the beginning of like the whole music NFT scene, Zora was one or if not one of the main places where people would kind of source new music artists. And it still is like that unique hub. And I tell people to go over there if you're waiting in the queue. I also tell artists, and Daniel, I think you, you exemplify this really well, is you shouldn't be on somebody else's schedule. If you have a vision for something that you're trying to do, go out there, go find a way to do it. And if you can't get on those major curation platforms, that's absolutely okay. There's other ways to build an audience in the space. You know, Matt, what is, what is your perspective around the whole curation marketplace side and kind of minting on your own site? Like, what are your thoughts around that? I mean, I think curation is, is critically important. And I think what's interesting is the more abundance that we have in music nfts like the space is still small today and like as more and more artists adopt web3 for all the benefits that it has for for them as well as their community members like there's going to be a world of abundance and then curation becomes only even more important and discovery becomes only even more important coming we've kind of see that seen that trajectory in web2 and so i think that is like critically critically important but i think that at the same time like Curation is amazing for 
for discovery. It's amazing for, as you know, a consumer, like knowing where to look and where to spend my time. Um, but I think there also needs to, you know, be that permissionless layer of, you know, I can go direct and I can, you know, use the, the curation and discovery platforms to build kind of, you know, my audience, like that's top of funnel maybe. And then there's a place where I can engage directly. I think we see that in web two, you know, TikTok, YouTube, et cetera. Like those are amazing places to grow your audience. But if there's not an off ramp, if there's not some place that you feel more ownership over and where you can engage directly, then it really does limit kind of that um, ability to, to create and capture economic value. And I think web three promises a lot of things. I think one of the biggest things for the creator economy is really the creative freedom where like, yeah, now you can drop music the day after you put it out. You know, you can put out, you know, any music you legally have the rights to. I think it widens kind of that design space like immensely, but the tooling needs to catch up to, to enable and support that. And so I think like there's a, obviously a lot of great platforms out there for, for a bonfire perspective. You know, we want to sort of be that, that hub and home. That's really the place that you can engage direct with existing collectors, community members, fans. And so we really don't want to do kind of the distribution discovery duration, like that part. I think platforms do that um, extremely well, but we want to be like that place where, you know, it feels like yours, it's your home, it's your home for collectors and it, it's your brand. And so I think that like, you really need both in the space. And I think they complement each other really nicely. And we're just starting to kind of see all of this play out. Another element of doing things on your own site is kind of using your own smart contracts that you have control over, right? Um, and this is a conversation that I had with Richard from Manifold a while back. Uh, and I think a lot of creators still don't understand what, why is that powerful? Like, why is it important to have control over your smart contracts? And maybe in, in the present st in present tense, like, it may not signify much, but maybe long-term it could unlock new opportunities that you otherwise maybe not have uh, with, with platform related smart contracts. Am I on the right train of thought here, Matt, Daniel, like what, what am I missing here? I think that's, that's spot on. I think like creator on contracts, like allows you to have total control of, you know, when to drop, what you drop. And then like, that is then a relationship with those collectors that, you know, you own and agnostic of any platform, you know, independent of any gatekeeper, like, you know, that can't be taken from you because it's sort of ingrained on the, the blockchain. Um, I think that as we get deeper into the space and you've got, you know, 10, 20, 50 projects, drops, et cetera, um, out there, then the ability to have, you know, everything under one or a few contracts, which you own is like, that then becomes the backbone for like that CRM of your fans. And I think that's really powerful. But I think one thing to know in like, as we were doing kind of a, a lot of investigation on, on just everything that's out there today, like a, a smart contract is not really um, an end user facing product. Like the, the fact of the matter is, is that there's a bunch of functions on it. You can call those functions, but you need to like, you know, have properly formatted requests. There's all sorts of like caveats and there's no UI for it. And so like, I think that there does sort of need to be a layer that sits between the smart contract level and kind of where end users who are non-technical are able to actually like make use of that smart contract. And so I think there's the front end, um, you know, often gets overlooked in Web3, but that's also a really big part of like delivering the actual experience that that matters. So we think that like, you know, both are important there. How, how difficult is it to actually do what you did, Daniel? Like that entire process of doing like a self-hosted uh, launch party, right? 
getting your own smart contracts, designing your entire site, creating a whole encompassing experience that would not depend on a platform. What does that take today? So the first thing I'll say is I think to an extent it does depend a little bit on a platform because I did have to create enough of a fan base and I did use those platforms to be able to do that. But I think, so it has been like a long time coming in terms of like uh, to be able to do, I guess, a drop of this scale. Um, but I think that my philosophy with everything has been like, how is this replicable? How is this scalable? How can artists be able to do the same thing? I think that that's one of the reasons that I decided not to just have a dev write a, write a contract for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us know that one of the biggest bottleneck uh, in music NFTs is there's just not a lot of music NFTs out, you know? And, I, and, <laughs> and, and so for me, like, the once I once I had the music done and I was like pre prepared to do it and and I, I want I figured that it made the most sense to just take kind of five six months to be able to take the time to to build it I guess maybe it was pr probably closer to like three months two three months but um, I wanted to be able to take the time to be like okay once this is set up for me I have a scalable way to be able to continue dropping whether it's editions whether it's one of ones whether I want to add interesting dynamic rarity components and audio visual experiences things of that nature. Um, I wanted to be able to just have a hub that makes it live together, but there were a lot of moving pieces, man. Like we had uh, Sophie Loftus who did like the visuals for it. Like she spent a lot of time on the phone with Matt on the phone with me trying to ideate and find ways to make layers work together because like a visual component to a drop is something that I've never done before. Um, you know, Matt and Melissa bonfire put like a ton of time into building the front end. And I, but for me, what I want to drive home is it didn't require a ton of money up front, which I think is, which I think is really important because I don't think that's a thing that a lot of artists have. Um, so, but yeah, I think, I think all in all, Matt, you, you can comment on it too, but it, maybe I want to say three months, including like ideation and like once, like seeing what it feels like and whatnot. Yeah. And, and I think that's also because like, you know, we had to establish this, the system, which was repeatable. And like, that was sort of a, a priority on both sides from, from the jump. And so, you know, three months to set up the first one, but, uh, you know, now at least that one process that we've already like built out can be, you know, infinitely replicated. And I think that for us, you know, we would certainly love like the opportunity to just work with other protocols, like be kind of like the, that, um, front end, like interface between, between creator and protocol for, for creators that are using bonfire. And I think that's just, you know, a much needed part of the stack that kind of hasn't existed yet where you've got a lot of no code contract builders out there. Um, and then you've got a bunch of people who see the promise of web three and want to be able to realize that. And I think like the, that kind of mid layer is, is very much what we're seeking to build out with bonfire. And, you know, we, we will kind of post Daniel's drop, like be able to support that same like flow and use case, um, for any creator. And, and really, you know, it takes, couple hours maybe to set up now. So it's like very much like a, a process that I think has become refined. And, and we're hoping that it just like enables like a lot more drops to happen, a lot more music to be out there, a lot more experiments to be run. And, you know, that helps accelerate kind of this space. And so that's sort of like, yeah. you know, to the extent we see, you know, our role in, in kind of what's been happening. Daniel, what was the mood board in designing the audio visuals and the, the auditory experience for this drop? What did that look wow. like? It's a great question. Um, it's almost like you're, you do a podcast for a living. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's actually interesting because I wanted it to, um, 
feel like Overstim is a big part of my identity and a big part of my brand, but I wanted to be able to have some sort of a departure of it while still, you know, making it feel like an important part of my life because it is. Um, a lot of this project was dictated by the view in glass house. Um, mm. I think that there, I think that there are some Easter eggs that you'll see in the visuals because we have, we have a pre-reveal and the post-reveal obviously, but there are, uh, some Easter eggs that you'll notice that have something to do with that. Um, I'm not going to give the full alpha, but that's, that's, a, that's just a little, a, a little, <laughs> a little nugget, you know? Um, but the, you know, I, the, a butterfly has been a big part of my career for a while. Uh, and the reason that that's the case is because I think that it signifies change um, in a really beautiful way. Like if you think about the lifespan of a, of a butterfly, like a caterpillar, I think is only alive for like, like or it's only like a caterpillar for like 30 <laughs> days or something like that or whatever it is. Um, it's like a very, I read it once, like a very short period of time. Um, but I, th I think it's, it's just very um, synonymous with like adapting. Uh, both musically and like given where the market is and things of that nature. So yeah, um, for me, a lot of, I wanted the visuals to be able to feel as much like the view and as much as the music as I could make it uh, feel. And fortunately, Sophie, I owe her like a lot of credit for, for making that happen because she's someone that I met. I met her at East Denver um, and I just showed her my music and she used to be an A&R before she was doing all this. So she definitely you know, has honest taste in music and, and will tell me things that she likes and doesn't like. And she was able to like ingest it and sit with it and listen with it for a while. And I gave her some notes and things that were interesting to me and symbols that I wanted to bring in. So I can talk about visuals all day, but I, I owe her a big, big, big chunk of the credit on that side because I'm, you know, I make wave files, you know, that, that's, that's, that's my life. So for her to, for her to kill it the way she did was, is pretty impressive. And, and I'm, I, I hope people will, will see that. Can you talk more about the butterfly though? Because it's so, it's so iconic to your brand and yeah. uh, you talked a little bit be behind the analogy flying and all that, but I feel like there's so many other like insects or so many other animals or so many other symbols you could choose, right. To signify who you are. And when yeah. people ask you like, what's your spirit animal, you'll tell them like <laughs> you're a butterfly, you know? Yeah. I mean, bro, <laughs> the, the actual origin story of it was September of uh, last year, uh, I was actually right before I did the overstim drop, I was in Spain. It was like the first vacation I ever like took for myself. And, um, I went to Spain, I went to this beach town called Loretta Mar, and I would like go on morning hikes there every day. And I was like finishing the final mixes for overstim. Cause I did, I did everything on that project myself. And I, I started to, I guess, think about like what I wanted it to, to look like and feel like, and. I, I like went on this hike and like there was like a locust of like monarch butterflies that kind of like flew over me while I was like taking a hike one day. Um, mm. And literally for the rest of that trip, I just kept seeing them. Like I would like, I got on the plane, like the girl next to me had like, you know, she had like a little butterfly thing on her backpack. Like my, my phone case has like butterflies <laughs> on it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, wow. it's just, it's just things that like, have, I guess subconsciously presented themselves. And I'm not, I'm not like the crazy spirit, most spiritual dude, but it's just come up so many times in my life that I like, I guess, have to acknowledge it. And and how, how Sophie, Sophie, by the way, who did the visuals has she has her own life backstory for why they're important to her too. So it kind of just worked out. Interesting. How are you measuring success for this drop beyond the mint itself? How are you thinking about success? 
Hmm. Yeah, I don't think success, uh, if, if, if we were to put it in terms of like a primary, secondary and tertiary priority, I don't even think sure. that um, minting makes the podium, like minting out makes the podium. Like It doesn't. Yeah, like for me, I think what in an ideal world success for every drop that I do is empowering other creators to try to do the same shit or take what I did and make it cooler. Uh, so I think for me at a, at a foundational level, um, it could mean that an artist decides to do a drop on their own contract, but maybe they have, maybe they have three fans that they want to interact with. Right. Um, or maybe it means that, um, some of the curated platforms might, you know, open up the, the floodgates a little bit and, and start to do the same things themselves. Maybe it's, um, if I do another drop, I can, uh, import sounds contract or, or, or maybe, you know, just finding ways for to create a little bit more cohesion because the reality is no one has it right. Myself included, uh, sound included, catalog included, uh, mint included, Zora included. I think that everyone has little holes that they're all trying to fill out. And so for me, I kind of have this responsibility in the landscape to try to patch some of them. Um, and I'm sure there are like little, little holes in my, in this project that probably won't be perfect, but, um, I guess success for me is is really just putting it out and being able to inspire a few people to do the same thing. I think at a at a fundamental level, um, that's that's probably the best answer. What about you, Matt? How are you guys measuring success uh, for the glass house drop? What does that look like? I think for us, um, I mean, really, it's been mostly defined kind of up until this point, which was like, can we bring Daniel's vision to life in a way that is reproducible and in a way that you know can be done in an easy and intuitive UI. And so I think, you know, we feel pretty good about kind of having accomplished that. And so, you know, it, everything from this point on is gravy, assuming that, you know, everything goes smoothly and, and well, as we, you know, fully hope and intend that it does. And so um, I think for us, it's similar. It's like, we want to encourage and enable the experiments to be run. And, you know, we're not creators ourselves, and it's ultimately creators who are who are leveraging these new tools. And, and so I think, you know, we want to, to be an enabler and to be a part of that in kind of the, the sort of invisible tooling layer, um, but that helps visions come to life and kind of be able to, to support, encourage, and then, and then really kind of like that can be our contribution to, to the Web3 sort of music movement that's happening right now is like letting those experiments be run, letting those visions come to life, and then letting kind of, you know, a thousand flowers bloom, if you will. And like, um, and then see what happens. Cause I think, yeah, to Daniel's point, like, yeah, we're all very much, I think thinking positive some and thinking about like, how do we like move the space forward and, and get to ultimately what we think, um, the potential is. And I think nobody has it right. It's not a solved problem, but I think, you know, every, every builder, every creator, every collector has a, has a role to play. Yeah. I think part of measuring success comes with strategizing how you're going to be dropping uh, the project. And I think what's really interesting about your project, Daniel, is how you're first releasing it on Web3 and then on streaming platforms, which has typically been your strategy from the get-go, even with overstimulated. Like that started in Web3, that launched in Web3, and then it hit the streets of Web2, right? Can you talk more about your strategy and what, like, Obviously it's worked, right? Like people, there's a level of fandom that gets developed and hype that gets developed when people collect things. And there's a, there's a, there's a band of collectors that kind of form around the EP or the album in question, but how do you see it? Like, why, why do you continuously follow that structure? 
I mean, I think it's because it gives time for mobilization of your of your fans. Verite made this point to me once, and it was a really good one, and stuck with me ever since. Like, and she's brilliant. I think she's one of the smartest people in Web three in music. There's always been this notion that there are a thousand. You need a thousand true fans to make a living off of music, right? I think what that one of the alternatives and one of the one of the ways that that ends up manifesting itself is, yeah, you need a thousand true fans, but maybe you also need fifty to one hundred Web three super fans. And I think in an ideal world. Those fifty to one hundred Web three super fans, some of the some of the resources that are able that you're able to allocate from those fans can funnel back into Web two success. And I think that if you're successful in a Web two landscape, there's a lot of synergy that's created with your Web two and Web three audience. And I think that in a lot of ways that can be one of the really fundamental things that helps bridge the gap, like which is this term that we all say, but no one really has like a solution for. Like imagine imagine that. I, I sell some NFTs. I have a relationship with these people. It, it helps me mobilize. We we help. It helps mobilize a way for the songs to do better. If the songs do better and more people listen to my music, more people are going to ask about my story. If more people are going to ask about my story, I'll be very open about Web three and like the importance of being rooted in that. So for me, it's basically just been a really good way to mobilize early on, have resources early on, and then collectively find a way to to win. And ideally, we all just kind of share the fruits of that win. So. I want to get into like the details of the mint, okay? Uh, because there's three parts to it, spanning three days with a reveal party happening on the fourth day. Daniel, what is that structure? What what does the timeline look like exactly? Three phases for us are going to be a free mint, a pre-sale mint, and a public mint. The free mint is July 17th, so that's kind of when it all kicks off. Um, and then, yeah, the 18th and 19th, so the two days following are the pre-sale mint, public mint, and then um, Friday, the 22nd is the reveal. And Got I think it. a really important part of that is kind of the incentive structure of being someone that's supported me in the past. So the people who made the music happen, which are the people who backed Malibu and literally helped us get the Airbnb to make the music, everyone has allocated one free mint. Uh, for that. Let's go! Um, <laughs> like, yes. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, be on the lookout for that. Um, and then for the for the pre-sale, I, I mean, Adam, you and I have had this conversation. You gave me, you've given me really good feedback about it. Is like trying to figure out how to price things in a bear market. So for the pre-sale, what we ended up doing is we ended up doing a 0.05 ETH uh, mint for the pre-sale and the people who qualify for the pre-sale are holders of Daniel Allen NFTs and people who have been a part of Overstim. And then the public sale will be 0.1 ETH, I believe. Yeah. Cool. Guys, I'm, I'm super stoked. Before I let you go, any, any last words from Matt or from Daniel? Yeah. I think, uh, I think if you're an artist out there and you are trying to find your footing, don't think about uh don't think about too many constraints i think try to instead have the idea and find a way to execute on it and make it happen rather than being in a box and thinking that you only have a few options in reality you'll be able to scale things later down the line but in an ideal world i just want this to feel like a really good stepping stone a really good alternative that can work in tandem with some of the other things so yeah if you're an artist that's that's just getting into it just try to do things you're amazing own. amazing what about you matt yeah, I mean, really not too much to add. I think it was, you know, an honor to be a part of, of this drop and to kind of help kind of see this come to life. But really, from from Bonfire's perspective, you know, big thank you to Daniel, to Sophie, and really excited about this drop to see how everything, uh, how it all comes together. Hell yeah, um, thanks, guys. Adam, for having me, by the way. Of I would be course. Always. Let's go. Always, always. Shout out, Adam. Uh, thanks, man. Guys, 
Go check out uh, Daniel's new site, DanielAllen.xyz. It's actually really nicely done. Shout out to Matt and, and Melissa and the Bonfire team. Guys, this was great. I'm going to be tuning in all four days, including the reveal. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. Thanks so much. What's up, guys? If you've gotten this far, then I owe you a listener badge NFT. Go to adamlevy.io forward slash poop. That's P-O-A-P. And click the respective season. Fill out your info and I'll distribute the free to mint NFT at the end of the season. Also, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. You won't believe it, but it helps me out a ton. And finally, hit me up on Twitter at LevyChain. I want to hear what you're building, the latest crowdfund you're trying to complete, or if you just simply want to chat. If you couldn't tell already, I love talking about where crypto meets the creator economy and it's no different if it's coming from you directly. Thank you so much for your support. It means the world. And we'll catch you on the next episode.